Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. You heard me describe sexual jouissance as a name, a statement, a declaration, a signifier of the real in the symbolic. That's in keeping with what Lacan is doing here in Seminar 17, which is to say, in the field of surplus enjoyment, we stumble upon the real. And I like this image of the crumbling tombstone because it marks a logical obstacle and also something physical. Lacan is very careful here, and I think a little too careful, in separating these two things out around the real father, where you've got Freud believing that the father was real as a physical thing, as an entity, a being in the world, and Lacan reading it more as a function, more as an operation, as a structural operator. Regardless of that, what we know looking back on Lacan's theory of the real is that it is a kind of raw materiality, But what he's adding here, and this is why he's stressing it, I believe, is that it also marks a logical obstacle within the field of the symbolic. A moment of errancy, a figure of slippage, mechanical and otherwise, within the symbolic. And sexual jouissance is there. It's a name for this slippage, error, stumbling block, logical obstacle in the field of the symbolic. Here's my question, though. Is it also possible for us to locate this name of the real, that is sexual jouissance, in Lacan's theory and typology of discourse? And I think the answer is yes. So, in that spirit, let's start by reviewing what we know about Lacan's theory and typology of discourse. First, you have this four-footed animal that he talks about early on in the seminar. And in this four-footed animal, you have these four positions. There's an agent who addresses an other, and something is produced by that addressivity. Beneath the agent is the position of truth. These are the four basic positions in any given discourse. So you can take the discourse of the analyst, the hysteric, the master, the university, and so on, And you plug each element into these positions, and those elements take on a certain function. If you put S2 in the position of the agent, that then becomes the speaking position that is then addressed to, in the case of the university, and other marked by objea. You can go on and work through each of the discourses. We're talking about his theory of discourse and the four-footed animal and the positions that each discourse is going to have, no matter what elements you put into those positions. Now, here's why it's important, because Lacan also adds something to this on page 92. And this is a risky move, but I also think it's an important one, and I think there's evidence in this text to support what I'm about to say. On page 92, you see Lacan coming up with something that looks a lot like the master's discourse and suggesting that each of these four positions is tinged with a certain feature 
typical of the master's discourse. So whatever appears in the upper left-hand quadrant in the field of the agent is going to be a kind of master signifier. It doesn't mean it's always S1. It means that whatever goes up there becomes a kind of master signifier. Okay? In the position of the other, Lacan says that whatever element you put in that position, whatever you identify as the other of the agent's speech, that other will be tinged with a kind of knowledge. Knowledge will be an element or an aspect, if you want to think of it, of the upper right-hand quadrant of this discourse. Similarly, the bottom right-hand quadrant, this field of production in the standard understanding of what Lacan means by discourse, he wants to say that whatever appears down there will also be tinged with jouissance. There will be a certain element of enjoyment that comes with that production as it feeds back into the imaginations, and I think that's important, and the machinations, even more important, of this agent. And then similarly, in the bottom left-hand quadrant, on page 92, you see him inserting the word subject in place of truth. And that makes perfect sense. The truth underneath the position of the agent is the truth of the subject position that that agency marks. Okay, that's important stuff to have in mind. So when you start working through each of the individual discourses, analyst, hysteric, master, university, and so on. Remember that we aren't just talking about agents, others, productions, and truth. We're talking about agents that function a bit like master signifiers, others that are tinged with knowledge. Whatever you put in that position will take on a kind of knowledge or ignorance, ignorance being the most developed form of knowledge that we know. Whatever is produced will be an object for surplus enjoyment. And then in the position of truth, we know that as the truth of the agent, the truth of the subject. So I offer that to give you the baseline understanding of Lacan's discourse and then to add this additional element that thickens his theory and his topology a little bit. And today, I want to thicken it even further because Lacan wants to separate the top part of his theory of discourse from the bottom part of his theory of discourse. You may have already heard this before. We're going to start digging into it. The top portion, from agent to other, Lacan marks this arrow with two lines through it, indicating that this is an arrow of impossibility. We will come to this. Right now, what I want to focus on is the bottom level of his discourse, in between the truth of the subject and what is produced by their address to another, Lacan inserts this shaded-in triangle, or in his vocabulary, delta. And this delta is a mark of impotence. So between the agent and the other, you have impossibility. And between truth and the production of that agent's discourse to the other and what is yielded from that, you have impotence. This further thickens the theory of discourse that we're working with here. Impossibility is at the top. 
impotence is at the bottom. And it's here in this field of impotence that we want to focus, as Lacan is doing here in chapters 11 forward. This diamond-type figure that you would typically see in logics of fantasy, Lacan is offering here as a kind of delta. And what he wants to figure this as, especially in the Discourse of the Master, which we'll come to, is a block, a barrier, a limit, an obstacle between the truth of the subject and the product of their address to another. That's the important part here. This delta of impotence that you see between truth and production is a barrier, a block, an obstacle between the truth that is going to be the cause that is the effect of the agent and whatever is produced by that agent's address to another. In other words, this field of production. And this, I'm going to suggest, in this delta of impotence is precisely where we see sexual jouissance showing up as the name of the real. I got lots of passages I want to show you. Too. First and foremost, let's start with page 174. <clears throat> 174 is a terrific page for piecing all of this together, provided you then take 174 and rhizomatically work into other previous and afterward pages that will further explain what he's doing here. But 174 is a nice little cluster where all the ideas come together into a single constellation. The paragraph I want to start with starts with, but there's the rub. Between us and the real, there is truth. Truth, as I once told you, one day in a flight of lyricism, is the dear little sister of Jouissance. Now here he's referring back to page 67 in a passage that we've already discussed and that we'll return to in a minute. In the meantime, keep your finger on that one. I hope that this has come back to mind, at least for some of you, at the moment when I am stressing the contrast between the first line and the second line in each of the four formulas that I have given you. So here he's talking again about discourse and the contrast between the first line in his theory of discourse, in other words, the relationship between the agent and the other, and he's talking about the second line between truth and production. And this is what he's going to spell out. The first line, he goes on to say on page 174, comprises a relation, indicated here by an arrow, which is always defined as impossible. That is again why that arrow has two slashes through it. It's an arrow of impossibility. In the Master's Discourse, for instance, and that's really the discourse he has in mind here in these later chapters, even though it's in service to understanding the Analyst Discourse, as we'll see. In the master's discourse, for instance, it is effectively impossible that there be a master who makes the entire world function. Getting people to work is even more tiring if one really has to do it than working oneself. The master never does it. He gives a sign, the master signifier, and everybody jumps. That's where you have to start, which is, in effect, completely impossible. It's tangible every day. So what he wants to suggest here is that before we get to impossibility and the real and truth and all of these more nosebleed conceptual um, objectives that he has here, he wants to say, just think basically 
about the idea that you could, someone could just speak and the world would operate. He's like, that's just fucking nuts. That's kind of what he's saying here. But note, he's always saying that this is the place we start, not where we stop. With impossibility written on the first line, here again of his theory of discourse, it is now a matter of seeing, as is already indicated by the place given to the term truth, whether it might be at the level of the second line that one would have the last word. However, at the level of the second line, there is no suggestion of an arrow. So between truth and production, whatever is the truth of the agent and whatever is produced by their address to the other, there is no suggestion of an arrow. And not only is there no communication, but there is something that acts as a block. That's what we're talking about here. This delta between truth and production, this delta of impotence, where I'm going to locate the name of the real that is sexual jouissance, is a block, indicating that there is no communication in any of the discourses between the truth of the agent as its cause and the product of the agent's discourse when addressed to an other. Between that truth of the subject and the product of their discourse, there is no communication. There is no arrow. There is only a block, and it is the block of impotence. What is it that is blocking? Lacan goes on to ask on page 174. It is what results from the work. And what a certain Marx's discovery accomplished was to give full weight to a term that was already known prior to him and that designates what work occupies itself with. It's called production. So here he's referring to the bottom right-hand quadrant of this theory of discourse, this field of production. Whatever the signs, whatever the master signifiers that come to be inscribed in the place of the agent, there's that important shift from page 92 that I was just talking about. Whatever's in the position of the agent functions as a kind of master signifier. It doesn't mean that S1 is always in that place. It means that whatever you put in the position of the agent operates as a kind of master signifier. Here he's alluding to that. Whatever the signs, whatever the master signifiers that come to be inscribed in the place of the agent, under no circumstances will production have a relationship to truth. So whatever that master signifier manages to produce in addressing an other, in commanding an other, that production will have no relationship to the truth of that master signifier's subjectivity of that agent's truth. One can do all one wants. One can say all one wants. One can try to conjoin this production with needs, which are the needs one fashions. There is nothing doing between the existence of a master and a production's relation with truth. There is no way of getting it to work. So there is an inoperativity that comes with this block, this barrier, this limit, this obstacle between production and truth. Something there doesn't work. Something fails, which is why Lacan marks this as impotence. 
Each impossibility, whatever it may be, between the terms that we put in play here is always linked to this. If it leaves us in suspense over its truth, it is because something is protecting it, which we shall call impotence. Impotence, this delta between truth and production, is a kind of guard. It guards sexual jouissance, as we're going to see, but it also guards production from access to the truth of the subject whose discourse to an other resulted in that production. You see, that's what he's saying here. He's going to call it impotence. Take, for instance, the university discourse. The initial term, the one that is articulated here under the term S2, and is in the position of unheard of pretension of having a thinking being, a subject as its production. As subject in its production, there is no question of being able to see itself for a single instant as the master of knowledge. So he's giving you an example here. He says, take the discourse of the university. You see S2 operating as a master signifier, as the agent, addressing objea, the kind of ignorant fancies of the student, if you want to stick with that example, and producing a certain type of subject, a barred subject, taking, in other words, a subject as its production. That's why you see the barred subject in the lower right-hand quadrant of the discourse of the university. And what he's saying here is that as subject, this barred subject in the bottom right quadrant of the discourse of the university, in the position of production, in other words, there is no question of it being able to see itself for a single instant as the master of knowledge. Here, as master of knowledge, he is referring to the S1 that is the truth of the discourse of the university. So the professors, the S2, addressing the ignorance and curiosities of the students, producing them as barred subjects, subjects of lack. And what Lacan is saying is those subjects of lack have no way of identifying themselves with, seeing themselves for a single instant as the S1, the master of the knowledge that, that is S2. So again, he's illustrating that there is a block of impotence, a barrier or a limit between whatever is produced in any given discourse and the truth that conditions the agent whose discourse results in that production. Now, I know that that's a little tangled, but it's precisely what Lacan is up to here around impotence. And the stakes are rather high, as we're going to see. So, page 174 is great. I walked you down right to the bottom of the page, but what I want to do is return to the top because I want to really indicate and show you where Lacan is putting sexual jouissance as prohibited, as fundamentally forbidden, as renounced, and so forth, and where the signifier of this renunciation pops up, where we can position it in his theory of discourse, in this delta of impotence. So, let's follow his lead, the lead he invites us to, at the top of 174, and return to page 67, where he talks about this dear little sister of jouissance known as truth. This is our first clue and our first opportunity to start doing this work of 
identifying where in the theory and topology of Lacan's discourse we see sexual jouissance functioning as a name, a statement, a declaration, and a signifier of the real in the symbolic. Page 67. It's a passage you know all too well at this point. I love page 67. Not just because the Marquis de Sade pops up as a theorist who loves truth, which is different from the philosopher who's always attempting to save it. That's terrific business there in the middle of page 67. Yes, yes, God, and the death of God, that's also there as well. It's really, though, toward the bottom of page 67 in Seminar 17 that we get something good here. This truth as external to discourse that is the sister of that forbidden jouissance. So when Lacan says truth is the dear little sister of jouissance, you always got to ask yourself, which jouissance are we talking about? Yes, surplus and sexual jouissance are reciprocally constitutive. They're flip sides of the same coin, like repression and its return. But check it out. Got to ask the question, what type of jouissance is he referring to here? What is the sister of truth? It is that forbidden jouissance. Okay, so your minds should now shift to sexual jouissance. Sexual jouissance, and everything we know about it, is the sister of truth. I say it's the sister because they are only related by this. And then he gets into this bit about radical logical structures and these stems that are uprooted from jouissance. And asking the question of what corresponds to enjoying these conquests, we've been through this passage before. What he's asking about is the relationship between sexual jouissance and truth. And think back to what we also know about truth, as always only ever half said. The love of truth is not just the love of the truth that can find expression in language. It's also the love of the parts of truth that cannot find expression, that are impotent, impotential relative to language. Impotence here is a position of, of great power, you might also think of it, if you want to flip it on its head. Adenomia is just as functional as dunamis. Lacan develops this so-called flight of lyricism, where you see truth as a sister of a forbidden jouissance on page 108. And again, he's doing it with an eye to the discourse of the master. We don't entirely know why yet. We have some clues, but we don't entirely know why or what he's doing when he keeps returning to the discourse of the master here. Again, we have some clues. You could probably answer the question if you thought about it. But let's take our time. Let's earn it. Page 108, in the Master's Discourse, first full paragraph. Since it is all the same there that surplus jouissance is situated. So there's one stake. It's in the Master's Discourse that we get a really clear view of surplus enjoyment in that lower right-hand quadrant. And what he wants to say here is that, quote, there is no relationship between what will more or less become the cause of desire for a character like the master, here's that little a in the bottom right-hand quadrant of the discourse of the master, who as usual fails to understand anything about it and what constitutes his truth. So again, what you're seeing here is in the discourse of the master, Lacan is saying that there is no relationship 
between what is produced by the master's command that the slave work, and we've talked through all the permutations that come from obeying that command, and what is produced as objea, as the cause of the master's desire. This is what Lacan's playing with here. But again, his eye is on that barrier, that block, that limit, that obstacle. And what he wants to say is, there is no relationship, there is no rapport, hear me now, between the truth of the master, namely his or her own barred subjectivity, and the cause of their desire. That's an interesting statement. If you think about what we know about the subject as a barred subject. As a matter of fact, Lacan continues, there's a barrier here on the lower level. And there on page 108, you see him firing this delta into the discourse of the master. There's a delta between the barred subjectivity that is the truth of the master as agent. And this, this obstacle is also what marks a barrier between that truth and whatever is produced when the slave goes to work in obeyance of the master's command. The barrier which we are within reach of naming at the level of the master's discourse is jouissance, quite simply insofar as it is prohibited, prohibited fundamentally. He is talking about sexual jouissance, and he is trying to name this thing and position it relative to the production of surplus enjoyment and all of the desirous objectives that the master then assumes. This is a really important passage here. The jouissance in question, again, as sister of truth, is that forbidden jouissance that is prohibited and prohibited fundamentally. If you've got ears to hear, we are talking toward castration. One takes jouissance by morsels. But as for going right to the end, I have already told you how it is embodied. No need to reactivate lethal fantasies. One takes jouissance by morsels. Here he is referring to surplus enjoyment. Surplus enjoyment accesses enjoyment as what you typically understand as jouissance only in morsels. It is morsels of that forbidden jouissance, little tastes of real enjoyment that surplus enjoyment gives us access to. That's why surplus enjoyment couples so well with desire, with commodity consumption, with sublimations of the drive that result in purchasing of little bullshit objects. I don't know if you've heard, but today, here, July 12th in the United States is Amazon Prime Day. Let me tell you all the lath houses that are on sale, all the little devices and toys and widgets and wobbles and bells and shiny objects that are perfectly available on Amazon as morsels of jouissance. That is what we're talking about when we talk about surplus enjoyment. It's the type of enjoyment that occurs when you unbox a new pair of shoes, if you can recall that example. And that's as far as it goes, which is precisely what Lacan is talking about here. This barrier, this block, this obstacle, this limit 
between truth and production is what keeps the subject from going beyond these morsels. Recall the passages we looked at from McCree. Reading on. This formula, as defining the master's discourse, has the interest of showing that it is only one is the only one that makes possible this articulation that we have pointed to elsewhere as fantasy, insofar as it is a relationship little a has with the division of the subject, and then he presents you with the mathem of fantasy. So, when you heard me a moment ago refer to this uh, delta as a kind of lozenge, and it is, I would suggest that, it is a kind of lozenge. The lozenge, the little diamond that you see in the math themes for fantasy and for the drive, these are markers of relationships and many different types of relationships depending on the math theme. So you can take, for instance, that lozenge, that diamond, and you can pull out each of the little V's or triangular type pieces, and you can get at least four relationships. There's greater than, there's less than, there's the carrot up and the carrot down. And you can figure out a different relationship between different entities depending on how you break apart or dissect that lozenge. The delta is one version of that lozenge. The delta here is the type of lozenge that indicates a non-rapport, a block, a barrier, a non-relation. But for Lacan, you have to remember, that is a certain type of relationship. Non-rapport is itself a certain type of relationship, one that we usually refer to as a differential relationship. But here it's more extreme. This delta that Lacan is linking up with the mathem of fantasy is in order to note that fantasy is blocked to the master. Check it out. In its fundamental beginning, the master's discourse excludes fantasy, and that's what makes him fundamentally completely blind. The most significant, salient feature of the master is his ignorance, here represented by blindness. The master is completely blind, in part because his discourse excludes fantasy. Why? Because it inserts a block or an obstacle or a barrier between the barred subjectivity that is the truth of the master and the objet a cause of desire that is produced by the master's commandment that the slave work. And because there is a non-rapport, a breakdown between these two, an inability for them to link up and be made to work, the master is ignorant of the fact that their discourse is founded on fantasy. Lacan is working very carefully here to point this out. And again, the leitmotif here is the discourse of the analyst. Check it out. The fact that fantasy can emerge elsewhere and specifically in analytic discourse, he continues, where it stretches out along a horizontal line in a completely balanced way, tells us a bit more about the foundation of the master's discourse. We'll come to that when we come to it, but he's inviting you to then compare the blocked fantasy, the failed fantasy that is the foundation of the discourse of the master, 
to the nice portrayal of fantasy that you see in the upper level of the discourse of the analyst. Now, if you've got ears to hear, you'll note, if indeed there's a fantasy in question here where you have objet a lozenge barred subject, that ain't the neurotics fantasy. The mathing for the neurotics fantasy is a barred subject, lozenge little a. That's what you see in the graph of desire. When you flip those two around, you got a different clinical structures fantasy popping, that of the pervert. Lacan doesn't go into that here, but it's worth noting, he just wants to point it out, that there's some sort of a fundamental connection here between the discourse of the master and that of which the master is ignorant, and the discourse of the analyst, and that with which the analyst confronts the master. We'll come to that in a little while, but it's here on page 108 that it really starts popping. Our goal right now is to keep this conversation going and to keep looking at the discourse of the master, but in search of this barrier, this delta. We see another delta, though, popping up on page 130. The real mainspring is the following. Lacan begins in the middle of page 130. Jouissance separates the master signifier insofar as one would like to attribute it to the father from knowledge qua truth. Now he's looking at impotence in the field of analysis, in the discourse of the analyst. So what you see now is this block or this barrier between the master signifier that is the product of the analyst's address to the analyzand and knowledge qua truth, which is what you see, S2 in the position of truth in the discourse of the analyst. And he's saying, again, there's a separation here. There's a break between these two, these two uh, aspects of the discourse of the analyst. If we take the scheme of the analyst's discourse, the obstacle, there's that word again, obstacle, raised by jouissance, and not just any jouissance, is found there where I have drawn the triangle, namely between what can be produced as master signifier, this new narrative that the analyzand generates, which we've discussed in our lecture on the discourse of the analyst, between what can be produced as an S1, in the discourse of the analyst he's saying here, whatever form it may take, and the field that knowledge has as, at, at its disposal insofar as it poses as truth. And that's what you see is knowledge as truth. Knowledge of the truth of the unconscious is one way we figured that in the position of truth in the discourse of the analyst. And there you have what enables how it truly is with castration to be articulated. It is that even for the child, whatever one might think, the father is he who knows nothing about truth. There is that master's ignorance again. He who knows nothing of this fundamental barrier between what is produced by their commandments to others and the truth that indeed is their own cause. What we're talking about here is fundamentally an addition to what we already know about the ignorance of the master. What we've heard so far 
is that the master is ignorant of how things work, hence their relationship to the bondsman, to the slave. They command the slave to take their knowledge and press their know-how and transform it into work. Work that then results in a commodity that the philosopher qua university, we've been working with too, helps then to be sold, given to, because the master doesn't often pay, the master. This production results in something that the master can annihilate, something that can provide them with surplus enjoyment, a commodity, a widget, whatever you want to call this thing. So far what we know is that the master has no clue how any of this shit happens. The master is ignorant of the know-how that went into the production of the artifact that the master then buys on Amazon at the store, the commodity. So when you're hanging out with your phone and that shit stops working, very few people listening to this lecture are going to pop open the back of their phone. In fact, most phone makers make it pretty damn difficult to do this and get in there and start working through the circuits of your phone and start changing the battery out. You're not going to get in there and try and repair your phone. What you do when your phone fails is you either take it in to be repaired or 99% more likely you take that shit in and get a new one. When it doesn't work, you simply get a new one. This is what the master does with impotence, with failure. When something breaks, it simply throws it away and gets a new one. The master is ignorant of how things work. The only thing the master wants to know is that things work, you've heard me say. So that's what we know so far about the ignorance of the master. What we're adding here is another field of ignorance, another place where the master is ignorant. So check it out. In the discourse of the master, what I'm telling you here is, between other and production, on the right-hand side of the discourse of the master, that is a field of ignorance. The master can't do what the slave can do because they lack the know-how, the savoir-faire, that the slave has. The master can't do the work of generating the commodity and getting it shipped to Target or Amazon or wherever you buy your shit. That's the job of the computer expert. That's the job of the algorithm developer, the data systems engineer. They know how to manage inventory and make sure things run on time. The master doesn't know about that either. The master does not know about the work that goes into the production of the commodity or how the commodity finds its way to the master's doorstep. In other words, on the right-hand side of the discourse of the master, complete ignorance. What we are now adding is another field of ignorance. The entire bottom row is also going to be a field of ignorance. Yes, the master gets access to the commodity qua objet a as a start on surplus enjoyment. But what this delta or this triangle of impotence indicates is that there's this other dimension of which the master is totally ignorant of the master's truth and also of the sexual jouissance that occupies this barrier or this obstacle that keeps the master from going too far with his or her products. Let me be clear. 
the master's ignorance is not just about how things work. The master is also fundamentally ignorant about how they themselves work. And crucially, how the master also fails to work when it becomes inoperative, when it stumbles, when it, in other words, encounters impotence. And Lacan is not mincing words here. What he's talking about is castration. We were just on page 130 looking at this. We're trying to cue up the topic of ignorance. Let me give you a couple of passages to consider. Page 135 is a good one. Middle paragraph. I mentioned ignorance just before. To be a father, I mean not only a real father, but a father of the real. Mark that passage. There are things that one must ferociously ignore. One would, in a certain way, have to ignore everything that is not what last time I tried to set into my text as being of the level of structure. This level having to be defined as the order of the effects of language. There you have it. The master is fundamentally clueless of the fact that they themselves are an effect of language. The master thinks they're the cause of everything. And what Lacan's saying is, that's fucking impossible. You can't just speak and have the world work. You're not the cause of everything. You're not this prime mover. In fact, what Lacan wants to say is, your fantasy of being an agent who can cause others and the world to work is premised on the truth, which is that you are, in fact, an effect of another cause, a cause occurring in the field of language. You are ignorant, dear master, of everything that occurs at the level of structure, this level having to be defined as the order of the effects of language. The master is ignorant of the fact that they are an effect of language. That is the fact hidden behind the fantasy that they are the cause of the world's operation. This is where one falls, if I can put it this way, upon truth. The upon could equally be well replaced by from. One falls upon truth. So here you can think of the master stumbling. But notice Lacan is saying, switch out upon with from. You also fall from truth. You are descended from truth. Truth here in the field of the truth of the subject, which is that you are an effect of language. The truth here is the cause of which you are an effect. That's why he's saying you can switch out upon with from. The master falls from, descends from, the effects of language that are his unconscious truth. One falls upon truth and also from this truth. That is to say, a remarkable thing. If we envisage this reference to be absolute, it could be said that anyone who adhered to it, but of course it is impossible to adhere to it, would not know what he is saying. This emphasis on ignorance keeps coming up. One more, just to drive it home. Again, on the topic of the real father, so to speak, which is all the real father is, is a so to speak. <laughs> the real father, if one can try to reconstitute it from Freud's elaboration, is properly articulated with what only concerns the imaginary father, namely the prohibition of jouissance. So here again, we see the real father as a myth, as a dead father, linked up 
with the prohibition of jouissance, that jouissance that is prohibited fundamentally, Lacan said. Here we're talking about sexual jouissance. On the one hand, what makes him essential is noted, namely the castration that I was alluding to just before when I said that there was an order of ferocious ignorance there. I mean in the place of the real father. There's a ferocious ignorance there. Now, part of what's happening here is a kind of slippage between the master and the real father. There's not enough evidence here to suggest how exactly Lacan sees them, but my inclination from what we've read so far is that the real father, as a mythical dead father, guard of jouissance, also occupies that delta of impotence. That's where the real father is, or at least where the real father as a signifier, as a structural operator or inoperator, pops up. I do not believe that there is an identification between the master and the real father. If anything, Lacan is playful here. The master thinks they're the father of everything that happens in the world. And what Lacan wants to point out is, nah, son, that's exactly what you are, is just the son. Moving on here, fast and loose, because that's the only way to end a true reading of a Lacan seminar. Let's be clear, what exactly is the master ignorant of in this second field of ignorance that we're trying to describe? I'm not making this shit up, it's straight from the book. Page 130, end of the first, second full paragraph. One is not the father of signifiers. At the very most, one is, quote, because of meaning here, signifiers. In other words, the master thinks they're the father of everything that happens in the world. They're the agent, the prime mover, the source. They speak, and the world works. There's that S1 for you. And Lacan's saying, that shit ain't the truth. You are not the cause of the world's operation. You are an effect of signifiers. So the master signifier in the position of agent is a kind of weird, delusional, um, fantasy of grandeur that the master acts out. At the very most, Lacan is going to say here, though, is you are that only because of signifiers. You are an effect of signification. And that's what he means by the agent here. The agent is an effect of a cause that they no longer have track of anymore, an unconscious cause here in the discourse of the master. That's why the barred subject is down there. That barred subject, recall, is the living individual having received the mark of subjectivity from language. They are an effect of language, of the symbolic. That's what we know about the barred subject. So when Lacan puts it in the position of truth in the discourse of the master, he's saying that the unconscious truth of which the master is unaware is that they, as a subject, the truth of their subjectivity, is that of all barred subjectivities. That he has received the mark, the divisive mark of the signifier, like everybody else. You are not the father of signifiers, dear master, Lacan says. At most, you are because of signifiers. And I want to drive this home. As Lacan does a few pages earlier, on page 127. Ooh, 127 is really great. 
The reference I evoke concerning the father of the people has many links with that of the real father as the agent of castration. It's an interesting move. If you just glance to your left on page 126, just to the left of that, the real father and this agent of castration bit, the real father carries out the work of the master agency. That's a passage to consider. But again, I would not let yourself identify the real father with the master. The, the, the work of the real father is that of castration, if you want to put it that way. But recall how Lacan is thinking this again. Castration is complete not with the no of the father, but when the sons accept that prohibition as their own desire. The law of the father, you must, becomes the basis for their desire as we will. That whole riff is designed to show just what it means to be an agent of castration. The agent of castration is a retroactive effect caused when the subjects here, the sons of the father of the primal horde, accept his earlier prohibition and reiterate it, restate it for themselves. You must not sleep with all the other women. And then they kill the father and they say, we as newfound brothers will not sleep with all the women. They reaffirm in a second moment the castration. The no of the father is only complete when the name of the father, the law of the father, is accepted by those on whom it was lowered. As the Freudian statement cannot do otherwise than set out from the master's discourse, Lacan continues on page 127, again giving us a clue as to why we're talking about the master's discourse. If only because it speaks of the unconscious, all Freud can make of this famous real father is the impossible. But then we actually do know this real father. He is something of a completely different order. So here again is that split between Freud and Lacan where the real father for Freud is an actual being in the world, according to Lacan. And then Lacan wants to say, what we read, though, is the real father as the real, as a structural operator within language, a logical obstacle, instead of a real thing against which Lacan says you might bang your head. He's working hard to maintain a distinction that in Lacan's broader theory of the real doesn't hold. When Lacan says the real, he does mean brute material reality at some level. What he also means more fundamentally, though, is the name that this designates as impossibility, as nothing, as void, as blindness, within the field of the symbolic. That's really the more complicated and proper way to understand the Lacanian real. It's not a world of reference unnamed beyond the field of the symbolic against which you can bump your head. Nah, man, the real fundamentally is the name we have for that impossibility of naming within the field of the symbolic. That's the point that I'm trying to get at here. And it's the one that Lacan is really working hard to distinguish here at the level of the real father. Freud think that motherfucker was real and could be killed. And what Lacan is saying is that shit ain't the truth. The proper way to understand the real father is in the position of the real, which is itself a logical opening or hole or void in the symbolic. First, 
in general, Lacan continues on 127, everybody acknowledges that he is the one who works and does so in order to feed his little family. If he's the agent of something in a society that obviously does not give him a big role, it nevertheless remains the case that he has some exceedingly nice aspects. He works and also would very much like to be loved. Isn't that sweet? Do you know what talking about himself here? Uh, the daddy's been played down in post-war French culture, perhaps. And Lacan is here showing up and saying, even though he doesn't play a big role, he still works. He's still out there getting it. He's still out there. And boy, would he just very much like to be loved. He's a little playful here, but he's also making a point. And it's a good point if you zoom out a little bit. Part of what makes Freudian psychoanalysis via Lacan so damn important is that what Lacan does is he adds to existing object relations theories that center on mommies a very pronounced emphasis on the function of daddies. Emphasis here on the function of daddies. Moving on. There is something that shows that the mystagogy that makes him into a tyrant is obviously lodged somewhere quite different. It's at the level of the real father as a construction of language. There it is. As Freud always pointed out, moreover. So even in spite of what Freud might give us to believe with regard to the so-called real father, Lacan is saying once again, oh, Freud, you know, if he just had access to linguistics, he would have really indicated that the real father here is a construction of language. It's a structural opening or operator within the field of language use. The real father is nothing other than an effect of language and has no other real. Boom. There it is. The real father is an effect of language. Think back to our logics on the name of the father that we were messing with when we introduced the real father and allowed it to bleed into that of the symbolic father. In each case, we're talking about daddy, not as a dick-swinging biological entity that could be killed and buried and have a crumbling tombstone. Literally, that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is the function that a father takes and can be made to serve when that function is connected to the place of the real in the symbolic. And when we realize that the real father is the father of the real, which is nothing less than an effect of language and has no other real. 127 is great. Got a bunch of good stuff along these lines. This is all of the shit that the master is ignorant of. I queue up these passages again to illustrate that what the master is ignorant of is not just how things work, but how they themselves work. And they work like real fathers in some sense. Because like the real father and any other signifying element in the symbolic, the master is one more effect of language. And that's Lacan's point here. Words, signifiers, real fathers, deluded masters, all of these entities are effects of language. What defines the master is that they are completely oblivious to this. This is the part of their existence. The fact that they are an effect of linguistic causality, this is what fucks them up. This is what they can't bear. This is the truth 
of the master's discourse, that they're a barred subject. What we're doing is we're identifying this, this delta of impotence as also an effect of language. This is the point about sexual enjoyment. It's not just a field of enjoyment. Nah, man, it's a name that marks that field as impossible. It's a statement. It's a designation. It's a signifier of the impossible, of the real, in the symbolic. That's what sexual enjoyment is. Sexual enjoyment is a signifier, not an experience. Let's stick with this topic of the real father, dead father, guard of jouissance, we've heard Lacan say. Again, we are not identifying this with the master. We're saying that the master, like the real father, is an effect of language. What we're looking at is this field of ignorance underneath the discourse, the upper part of the discourse of the master. It's a field of ignorance in which the truth of the subject is separated from the product of their speech, of their address. There's a barrier there, and we're looking at that barrier, and that barrier is linked to the real father, as the dead father, as the keeper of jouissance, we've been saying. Keeper of forbidden, prohibited jouissance. It is precisely here that all of Lacan's discussion of the dead daddy also takes shape. A passage that I can't point out to you enough is on page 123. You'll notice at the bottom of 122, he starts by popping about this dream that goes, he didn't know he was dead. The reference is there. You can go track it down on your own. You don't need help with that one. But man, when he gets into talking about death as properly speaking unknowable at the top of 123, we all need help with that one, which is why we're going to focus there. I am dead very exactly insofar as I am destined to die. But in the name of this something that does not know it, I don't want to know it either. That's the thing about the master. The master's desire is, I don't want to know. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know about it. It doesn't know about death, and it doesn't want to know about death. But that's not exactly what he's driving at. Remember, we're looking at that real daddy, the daddy of the real. This is what makes it possible for us to place at the center of logic this all men, and all men are mortal the basis of which is precisely the non-knowledge of death. So he's talking about this classic syllogism in Platonic thought. All men are mortal, Socrates is mortal, and it's a syllogism because a conclusion necessarily follows. Socrates gonna die. Okay. Just as it is what makes us believe that all men mean something, all men born of a father, including masters, by the way. Listen up, son who we are told insofar as they, the men, are dead, do not enjoy what is there for them to enjoy. He's getting to it. He's ramping up. You can already hear him starting to get a little kooky here. An equivalence is therefore drawn in Freudian terms between the dead father and jouissance. It is he who keeps it in reserve, if I can put it like that. Yeah, bro, you can put it like that. That's pretty fucking interesting. The dead father is the keeper of jouissance and a keeper that keeps jouissance in reserve. The jouissance here is the forbidden jouissance. And everything you're hearing me talk about right now, we are positioning in the delta of impotence 
between truth and production in any given discourse. Here, though, focused on the master. In the manner in which it is stated, not at the level of the tragic, with all its subtle suppleness, but in the statement of the myth of totem and taboo. The Freudian myth draws an equivalence between the dead father and jouissance. This is what we can describe with the term structural operator. So here we're again looking at that passage. Here the myth transcends itself through stating in the name of the real, for this is what Freud insists upon, that it actually happened, that it is the real, that the dead father is what guards jouissance, is where the prohibition of jouissance started, where it stemmed from. So the dead father, as a figure or signifier of the real, of the impossible, within the field of the symbolic, and part of the work we're going to have to do is separate the impossibility of communication that you see in the top part of every given discourse from the impotence that you see in the bottom part. But here what he's talking about is a dead daddy who keeps jouissance in reserve, guards it jealously, and the jouissance in question is a prohibited jouissance. Dead daddy is where this prohibition began, where it stemmed from. Hear me, he's talking about castration. The fact that the dead father is jouissance presents itself to us as the sign of the impossible itself. Here's that good passage again. And in this way, we rediscover here the terms that are those I define as fixing the category of the real, insofar as, in what I articulate, it is radically distinguished from the symbolic and the imaginary. The real is the impossible not in the name of a simple obstacle we hit our heads up against, there's the passage I just mentioned, but in the name of the logical obstacle of what in the symbolic declares itself to be impossible. This is where the real emerges from. And this delta that we've been talking about of impotence is where all this shit happens. This is where daddy is dead, this is where daddy as the agent of castration exists. This is where jouissance as fundamentally prohibited is found. This is where the dead daddy guards against and holds in reserve the forbidden jouissance that he in fact is. Lacan's putting all that shit, including the real, in that delta. I think this is a great passage to have in mind. It allows us to make some very risky moves and focus really forcefully at, on this delta and really think about this thing as a delta of impotence. And whenever Lacan says impotence, your mind should immediately shift to discussions of castration. This logical obstacle that he is again referring to here on page 123 We've heard it before. Let me get the passage from McCree just to call your attention to one more time. It's on page 699. For desire is a defense, a defense against going beyond a limit in jouissance. We can now understand what Lacan means in this very famous bumper sticker. Desire is a defense against going beyond a limit in jouissance. We have found that limit. The limit in jouissance that Lacan is referring to here 
in the subversion of the subject essay on in Acree, page 699. That limit is marked by the delta of impotence between truth and production in the bottom section of every given discourse. That's what he's talking about here. The desire in question is the desire that you see emerging as objet's effect within the discourse of the master. So the master commands the slave and the slave produces something. A loss, a gain, whatever it may be, it is for the master's enjoyment. And that enjoyment is surplus enjoyment, which operates again in fields of like commodity consumption and the like. This is a field of desire, where the drive, if we can even talk about it this way, has been sublimated and pressed into the service of desire, ever renewing, ever dissatisfying, only ever giving us morsels of enjoyment, little pings of jouissance. What desire does, though, in its connection with surplus enjoyment, is it keeps us from going beyond a certain limit in jouissance. What we are talking about now is that limit, that limit in jouissance. And now you also know what is beyond that limit, beyond the limit in jouissance that desire prevents us from reaching. What we find beyond this limit is truth. That's what's up here. Desire and the field of surplus enjoyment, as you see it being produced in the discourse of the master, has a defensive function. It keeps us from butting up against and ever trying to get beyond the delta of impossibility that marks a limit in jouissance. Because were one to go beyond that, where would they find themselves but in the position of truth? The lower left-hand quadrant of any given discourse being the position of truth, the truth of one's own subjectivity. At stake here is Lacan's identification of the real father as the father of the real, as what you heard him say on page 126, the agent of castration, or at least the signifier, the figure, or the figurehead of that castrative logic. Which brings us, at long last, to the chapter that I've titled this lecture on. Chapter 11, page 154. 154 is a great Lacanian passage, a great one for understanding, especially one of the two very challenging topics in his thought, namely the one. Check it out, page 154. Make no mistake, this is a page about castration. What does experience indicate to us, he asks toward the top. In point of fact, that it is only when this little a is substituted for woman that man desires her. So recall these pages. At the bottom of page 153, he cues up the sexual relation. Dun, dun, dun. And then he's got media. And then he's talking about man and woman. But notice, this paragraph you just heard me start, it ends on man's impotence, which is precisely where man, when he speaks, when he speaks as master, discovers that he is a failure. So the important part also about the master's agency 
is not just that it's founded on a truth and a field of impotence that it can't handle, but that whenever it tries to do what it says it's supposed to be able to do, namely just speak and make the world work, in other words, be the father of all signifiers, every time the master opens his mouth, Lacan says it here very clearly, he discovers that he's a failure, that he in fact is impotent. This is where one has to start from in analytic experience. What would be called man? That is to say, the male as speaking being disappears, vanishes through the very effect of the master's discourse. Spell it as you will. Through being inscribed solely in castration, which by this very fact is properly to be defined as being deprived of woman, of woman insofar as she would be realized in a suitably congruent signifier. You don't need to worry about the whole man and woman stuff. What we're talking about here is the discourse of the master. We'll come to man and woman a few series from now. Right now we're looking at castration and the way that it emerges as failure whenever the master opens his mouth. Nevertheless, we continue. Being deprived of woman, this expressed in terms of the failure, there it is, same French word too, of discourse, is what castration means. It is indeed because this is not thinkable that the speaking order institutes this desire, constituted as impossible, as the intermediary that makes the mother, insofar as she is prohibited, the privileged feminine object. So if you prefer Seminar 7, to all the other seminars, you can start thinking of sexual jouissance in, I think, a, a too simplistic way around the prohibition of incest, the prohibition against the mother. That's not an unproductive way to begin, but if you stop there, I don't think you get the full robust theory of sexual jouissance that Lacan is working up 10 years later, which is where we are now. This is the wrapping established by the fundamental fact that in a mythical union between man and woman, there is no possible place that could be defined as sexual. Again, save it for Seminar 20. We'll get there. This is indeed where what we grasp in the psychoanalytic discourse, here it becomes crucial, the unifying one, the whole one, in caps too, capital O-1, the whole capital O-1, is not what is involved in identification. The pivotal identification, the major identification, is the unary trait. It is being, capital B, marked one. Not whole one, but being marked one. And we are here right at the start of Seminar 17, right back to where Lacan insists that the living individual is the locus or the site that receives the mark of signification. This is what it means to be marked one, O-N-E. To be marked one, the unary trait. The unary from the French, un meaning one, or it could mean one. To be marked one is to become a divided subject. That bar through the subject, if you want to think about it this way, is a one that marks the living individual and now marks them as a divided speaking being. Great passage to understand what Lacan is doing with the one. The whole one, the oneness, the totality of authority that the master presumes, in other words, 
is founded on the master's fundamental ignorance that prior to this, they themselves, like the rest of us, have been marked one. Split asunder by the signifier. The barred subject is the truth and the cause of the effect that is the delusional master's belief that they can simply open their mouth at the father and keeper of signifiers and make the world work. I think you see now what Lacan is up to here in terms of this ignorance that the master can't quite grapple with. The connection here is the one we need to make. If you're looking at the discourse of the master and you've got this position of production and truth and then impotence in between, what I am suggesting here is that there is a correspondence between the truth of castration that the master cannot accept the barred subjectivity that you see in the lower left-hand quadrant of the discourse of the master, and this delta of impotence where you see the real father as the keeper of jouissance, this barrier between surplus enjoyment and one's truth, where we see the name of the real as sexual enjoyment. These are linked together. The delta of impotence and the truth of one's split subjectivity come together in a single word, and that word is castration. And castration is what we symbolize when we talk about the unary trait and its effect on living individuals. Thanks for listening to Lectures on Lacan. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.